Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm releasing a special bonus episode for the week. Two episodes in one week. Why, why do you guys get another episode this week? Well, because it's a special week. My very first documentary, Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics, just came out this week. It's on Amazon. It's on iTunes. It's on a bunch of other smaller things as well, like uh, perhaps your PlayStation. It's on Google Play, Vudu. It's, uh, it's on a whole bunch of other things. If you go to psychonauticsfilm.com, which you can also find through my website, Shane Moss, M-A-U-S-S, Com. It will show you all the other links as well, but if you're on Amazon or iTunes, easy breezy, get it today, watch it, rent it, whatever you can do to get your eyeballs on it, and if you could spread the word for me, I sure hope you enjoy it, but it would really be helping me out if you can spread the word, get other people to watch it, other people to rent it, buy it. My goodness, that would be amazing. If every single person listening to this podcast right now watched Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics, we'd be in real good shape. And it'd mean more documentaries in the future and more things like that. And I really think that you'll enjoy it. This is two years in the making. So excited. Thanks for the reviews ahead of time. Make sure and get on there and review on iTunes and Amazon. That really helps us out. And enjoy the extra episode today. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I am in Bentley University in Waltham, Massachusetts. I started comedy not too far from here in Boston, and as I was driving in, I like, why do I recognize this place? I used to do some delivery. I worked at a factory work around here. So I used to drive all over Massachusetts. And so, or maybe I performed here or something. Anyway, I was getting a lot of odd memories coming back to me on, on the drive up. But my guest today is Dan Everett, who is the author of so many science books. It looks like about 11. Is that? Yeah, probably closer to 15 in different languages. But uh, yeah, yeah, at least 11. Goodness. And you've spent the last, uh, or, or you spent about 40 years in the Amazon. Is that y right? This yeah. I went there when I was uh, 25 and I'm 67 now. So uh, uh, over the years, I've lived in the jungle for over eight years, uh, just in the jungle. What brought you there originally? I originally went to uh, the Amazon to be a Christian missionary and convert Indians to Jesus. <laughs> really? Yes, that's right. Oh, I'm so happy I asked. <laughs> I thought I knew what brought you there. <laughs> okay. And uh, eventually uh, was converted by the people I worked with to atheism and uh, became a scientist instead. <laughs> oh, wow. The strange twists and turns yeah. that life can take. That is incredible yeah. you got you got converted the tables turned on yeah you. that's right they converted me <laughs> they they had a really interesting standard of evidence they would say things like or ask things like hey dan um is Jesus uh, brown like us, or is he white like you and I said, well, you know some people say he was brown, some people say he was white, 
yeah, but you saw him, so what did he look like? And I said, well, I never saw him. Uh, your dad saw him. No. Who do you know that saw him? I don't know anybody that saw him. Then why are you telling us about him? <laughs> they, they feel like if you don't have any really good direct observation, you shouldn't be talking about it. It's, it's fictional to them. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, that's not bad. That's, uh, that's They don't have really... any concept of God or superstition or anything huh. like that. The world is just the way the world is, what you see with your eyes and feel with your hands. Really? Yeah. Oh, I thought, I thought, uh, why, I'm not sure why I thought that, uh, that people in the jungle were like polytheistic and every ha- everything had like a certain like tree spirits and different uh, yeah like- that's a that's a common view in fact many anthropologists uh, have have gone on the record as saying that all cultures have religion but um peter Hutt doesn't seem to have any religion mm-hmm. um uh, whatsoever they certainly um don't fear fear death or people that have died or anything any spirits in the jungle um Hmm. they do see um certain kinds of entities that they explain as being like people but unlike people you know sort of uh vague but i i have come over the years i've i've gone from thinking those were spirits that they thought they were seeing to realizing that they're uh, fictional objects that uh, are seen as fictional objects and just liven up the environment. So if the Pinaha come together, somebody can actually come out of the jungle saying that they're one of these creatures, and it's like theater. Yeah. Everybody, everybody knows who that is. Right. Uh, but it is it is their equivalent of theater. I pretend to be like Batman all of the time. I don't <laughs> yeah, believe right. in Batman. It just makes me a better person to imagine <laughs> that I'm uh, similar that I'm to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's about as close as they get to religion. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. And so well, that's so strange. And so then uh, now you find yourself uh, did you go straight into studying evolution after that because you you do a ton of stuff with the evolution of language now did you go straight from christian missionary to studying evolution was it that hard of a turn no i had a i my only degree was i graduated uh, number one in my class from the moody bible institute in chicago (laughs) and um that's a fun name it is it's a fun name Uh, dl moody was an was an interesting guy but um i then started a phd program in brazil so i did my phd in linguistics in brazil so that i could maintain my contact with the amazon and um Eventually, uh, started writing and publishing. My first job in the U.S. was at the University of Pittsburgh, and I was writing a lot on linguistic theory. Um, I, you know, was a, a very strong uh, supporter of the work of Noam Chomsky, which is like 180 degrees from what I do today. Mm-hmm. But um, um, I've written several books on language, and then the cultural basis of language, and then it occurred to me that if I we're really going to round out my thoughts on language. I had to look at where it came from in much more detail. So for the last several years, I've been working intensely on the evolution of language. And in the last year, I've partnered up with uh, uh, Larry Barham, who's an archaeologist at the University of Liverpool in England. And uh, we've written a very large paper together looking at Homo erectus tools. He actually does the research and collects the tools. And we look at them together Um and look for symbolism in the tools, which is the evidence that we both take as important for trying to s- establish that they had language. So, mm. so that's some of the most exciting work that I'm doing now, and it's probably what I enjoy 
more than anything I've ever done before is this work on the evolution of language. That's fantastic. I mean, what a fascinating thing to try to, uh, as as fascinating as as uh, all aspects of evolution are, it seems like such a difficult process to, I mean, you can go back and you can see a, a little bit of uh, kind of what they had in terms of tools. You can go back and, and see, okay, the uh, the bones are were structured in this way, so we have an idea that they uh, were that they stood upright, or or you know spent more time in trees, or what have you. But going back and studying language, how how do you try to make a determination on whether people that existed a million years ago had a language? Yeah, that's what makes it challenging. Language doesn't leave fossils. You don't get fossilized words. And uh, since writing comes so much later than spoken language, um, you're not going to find written systems, although you might find some things, and we do, that look like trying to represent uh, uh, some sort of things. But so so it depends first on what how you define language. Um, and Larry and I... Uh, take a very different approach, and I've always taken this approach, very different from many linguists. In fact, probably the majority would say that language begins with grammar. And um, we argue that, um, and, and I do in my book, How Language Began, I argue at length that that's not the right way to look at it. You're looking first for symbols, which um, encode meaning, and, and the idea that they had symbols uh, sort of precedes everything else. So you're first looking for evidence for symbols. So if we go back three million years, um, symbols are um, are uh, one of three types of signs that uh, many linguists and philosophers recognize. And um, the first type of sign, the most primitive, is the icon. It's something that resembles something. Um, and so... Uh, the first evidence that we have that, so like all paintings and sculptures are icons. Um, they can also be symbols, but they, they start off life as icons. So we find this three million year old, two inch by three inch pebble in a cave in South Africa. And this is before any humans existed. This is Australopithecus africanus. And this pebble is interesting because it looks like uh, a smiley face. In fact, the little you know, yellow t-shirt, smiley face. It's got what looks like two eyes and a smile. Those were worn into the pebble by erosion, but it does look like a human smiley face. And so these Australopithecines, who were less than, you know, around five feet tall maximum, um, mainly between three and a half and four and a half feet tall, pick this up miles from their cave. We, we can establish that it's not like the minerals at their cave, and we sort of know that miles away you can find this kind of mineral. Uh, and they carried it back to their cave. Uh, and why did they do that? The best explanation is that it looked like a human face, and they recognized that it looked like a human face, and somebody thought that was worth looking at and keeping. Hmm. So that's the first really strong evidence in the archaeological record a million years before humans that some creatures in our line of uh, descent um, recognized an image and contemplated that image. I mean, you can only say that they took it up there in some sense to contemplate it. Hmm. Um, indexes are the kinds of signs that every animal uses because uh, they're like footprints and smells. They're 
physically connected to what they represent. So a footprint was physically made by whatever made the footprint, and you know that thing was around there when you see the index. Every animal interprets those, even you know earthworms, para- anything, paramecia. They all have to be able to read indexes to function in the world and to, in a sense, uh, icons in, in, a, in a more restricted kind of sense. But symbols only seem to be found with humans. And what differs, uh, what, what makes uh, symbols different from indexes and icons is that there's no physical connection. An icon physically resembles something. An index is physically caused by something. Uh, but a symbol is a cultural construct. So the fact that dog, which is a symbol, the, those three letters form a word, which is a symbol in English. Uh, the fact that dog means canine, uh, in English, and it's cachorro in Portuguese, and neopai in Piraha, which is an Amazonian language. <clears throat> Those are cultural decisions. Everybody has seen the dog, mm-hmm. but what we call it, so there's an object, the dog, and what we call it, the form, and how we interpret it, and those three things are culturally brought together. And so what you're looking for when you go back looking for symbols is evidence for culture, and evidence that culture was creating certain forms. And if it was doing that, those forms meant what the culture created them to mean. And so the most long-lasting things in the human archaeological record are stone tools. Some actually, there are some wooden spears found that are about 450,000 years old called the Shonigan spears, which were not made by sapiens, us, because we didn't exist then. They were either made by Neanderthals or Erectus. I tend to think they were made by Erectus. Uh, And they show evidence of culture. They show evidence of planning. They show evidence of working together. Um, But so do some of the stone tools. And that's what um, we're looking at in the new research is what is cultural about the way these stone tools are designed? um, And what would that have meant to those people? And what's the evidence for that? I mean, so... To take one easy example, um, I looked at it, a large k- kit of Neanderthal tools, and they, ha- they made all of these incredibly different tools. I mean, not like uh, hand drills and microphones and the things we make today, but they were pretty interesting tools, stone tools, each made for a different purpose. And the first question you have to ask yourself is, do you really think they didn't have names for those? Mm-hmm. I mean, how did they say, get me this thing? I mean, you know, they, they had to have words to be able to have a, a toolkit that elaborate. Right. Um, and and um, so we're starting to see the same things with Erectus. But Erectus had lots of other cultural accomplishments that often get overlooked. Hmm. Why uh, then, it, it, what's the advantage of going to uh, the Amazon to study study language? How does that help? Oh, well, the, well, the Amazon preceded all this. Uh, you know, the Amazon took me into contact, brought me into contact with languages. So, you know, one of my biggest books, which is probably sold in the neighborhood of 200 copies, it's a huge uh, bestseller, (laughs) and it only costs about $400, is a large 500 and something page grammar of a language of the Amazon. And uh, one doesn't write those books um, for any other purpose than science and maybe as a record for the people who speak the language. But... um, Looking at how vastly different some languages can be from one another when you do field research um, was, to me, reward enough. I mean, I just was really interested in coming up with an understanding of the 
perimeters of human language, how different languages could be from one another. But that eventually led uh, a few years ago to my understanding, uh, wanting to deepen my understanding of cultural variation and what's the basis of human culture. You know, so I wrote a book on that, published by University of Chicago Press, um, and then uh, uh, I wanted to understand where language came from. So all of these things feed in because when you've done field research and you've looked at artifacts and you look at how people talk about them and you work with hunter-gatherers um, today, well, Erectus was a hunter-gatherer society. So you can begin to see similarities and you can, uh, I believe through field research on contemporary hunter-gatherer languages, better interpret the evidence from this initial hunter-gatherer culture hmm. that uh, we all descend from. Hmm. So how? what is the difference in complexity between uh, what hunter-gatherer language is like and our modern language? Well, some hunter-gatherers have... I mean, everybody has uh, a language that is complex enough to do what they want to do with it. And so when people ask me what's the hardest language, for example, it is the language that is most unlike my current language and circumstances, mm -hmm. whatever that is. So when I look at these languages and see how they solve problems, and, you know, so Peter Ha has gotten, the language I've worked on the longest, has gotten very famous over the years because of aspects of its grammar that's caused huge controversy. My claims about the aspects of its grammar uh, have caused huge controversy. And um, um, it's been referred to by, you know, by, by lots of people. It's, uh, for a while, the article in which I described this, it was the most cited article in current anthropology, which is the number one journal of anthropology. But um, um, going from that to looking at Homo erectus, we have a very, it's, it's very difficult to know how complex Homo erectus's language would have been, but languages grow by accretion over the years, so, and they change all the time. So, um, as cultures become more complicated, complex, and their needs, you know, so we want to talk about things that, uh, are more complex. There's just simply no, no question that uh, if I want to talk to you about physics, I have to use a vocabulary and probably constructions that are not the same as if, if we're talking about a baseball game. Um, and poetry uses a different kind of grammar and a different complexity of vocabulary than prose. Um, literacy, you know, uh, books have much more complicated grammar by and large than the way we speak um, because... Mm -hmm. For, for a number of reasons. but So when we look at Homo erectus, how complicated does a language actually have to be to be able to say what a culture wants it to say? And what I argued in How Language Began is that it has to have symbols and an agreed-upon way of arranging those symbols so that we know. So if I say John saw Mary, those are three symbols. John is a symbol, saw is a symbol, and Mary is a symbol. And we have agreed in English not that we all sat down and had a meeting about it, but we agreed that if what comes first is the the uh, new the old information, mm -hmm. uh, usually the subject, and what comes next, Aristotle recognized this, for example, is the predicate, which is a verb and an object, and that's where the new information is. So if I say John saw Mary, um, we know about John. We're talking about John, and saw Mary is what John did that we you didn't know before I told you. 
Um, and so that's sort of the simplest organizing principle of language. And to get it, all you need is to be able to put the symbols in a row and have that arrangement, the linear order of the symbols be agreed upon so that we know that Mary saw John does not mean the same as John saw Mary. But in Latin, they could mean just the same because Latin adds a little twist called case, which marks the noun as nominative or accusative. So if the accusative noun comes first, it doesn't bother me because I know that's the one that was seen and not the one doing the scene. But English, we used to have cases, but we've lost them except on our pronouns. So he, his, him have cases. But uh, John, there's no accusative case for John or nominative case for John as there would be in Latin. So the only thing we have to go by in English usually uh, is word order. And so we have to keep that pretty severe. But, you know, so Mary saw John just can't be the same as John saw Mary. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Latin, it could be because they have extra little clues that help you separate it. So hmm. languages evolve these little uh, bits and pieces over time. Um, always to the same end, though, to keep things uh, communicatively efficient uh, in a particular cultural context. Hmm. And... Um, that differs from what many linguists would say. Uh, for example, Steve Pinker would not say that. What he would say is that uh, the grammar is a set of principles that is independent of culture. There's no connection with culture. Noam Chomsky would certainly say that. And uh, in my work, I've tried to show that that is not the right way to look at language, that language culture plays a heavy role in affecting our grammars. Right, I had you and Pinker on my stand-up <laughs> science show the other night. I, I, yeah. I tried to get you to argue at the end, just for just for a little bit of fun. You know, they, uh, it almost worked. Yeah, yeah, we've argued in print before, and uh, we wanted to end the night in a friendly way. Sure, sure, of course. Hey guys, Randy and Jason here, and whether you're working from home or working on your fitness, you want what you're listening to to be what you're listening to. Not yeah, you don't want to catch like glimpses and uh, little snippets of like what snippets? other- Snippets? You know what I'm of what your kids are listening to or anyone else. Everyone needs a great pair of wireless earbuds, but before you go dropping hundreds of bucks on a pair, you need to check out the wireless earbuds from Raycon. They're amazing. I've yes. got my Raycon earbuds. They so cancel out everything. Raycon earbuds start for about a half price of the other ones, premium wireless earbuds on the market. And they sound just as amazing as the top uh, audio brands. You know, the newest model, the Everyday E25 earbuds are their best ones yet. Jay, I love these uh, so much. I'm using it nonstop, Six Brent. hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth playing, more bass, more compact design. Gives you a nice noise isolating fit. I like that if you have one of them in, you can just hear, use one of them. For They're stylish and discreet. I love these so much. Now's the time to get a pair of the latest and the greatest from Raycon. Get 15% off your order by Raycon.com. Uh, slash Starburns. That's by B U Y Raycon.com, R A Y C O N.com, slash Starburns for 15% off Raycon wireless earbuds. I love these earbuds so much. I know you do too. I'm all about them, man. They're they're my reach. You know what you feel when you reach for them and, and that's you the thing love you reach them. for. And that's my hike. Those are my hike earbuds. Those are hike. my walking earbuds. By B U Y R A Y C O N.com, slash Starburns for 15% off. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, overdesigned, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. 
We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 8989. Enjoy. So I don't know enough about language studies to uh, to have a real sense of this, but my but my sense is is that in the recent years, some of uh, Chomsky's work has kind of fallen out of favor a, a little bit, or, or people have been uh, kind of opposing his views because Chomsky was like the big name in language for for a very long time and now now some some people are are trying to uh, are basically was Chomsky saying that language is uh, it was like this genetic component where all of a sudden you just evolved the genes for it and it just appeared uh, yes to to that, put it in its simplest form Chomsky would say that um, there was a mutation yeah. in our species about 200,000 years ago, maybe even 150,000 years ago, where not even everybody in our species acquired this, but um, but some lucky people in our species got a gene that enabled them to build a grammar of a certain type, which he calls recursive, you know, which are just known as recursive grammars. Um, and this didn't evolve from anything. I mean, it just popped in the bean. Um, he says it could be a fact about... Uh, um, about physics, you know, you pack so many neurons in a small skull and pop, you get language. Um, I mean, um, Alfred uh, Russell Wallace debated a lot with Darwin on whether the mind could have evolved. And Wallace believed that it couldn't have. And Darwin thought, obviously, it did. There's no other s- source for it to arise. And and Chomsky is um, much more on Wallace's side in this view that mm-hmm. that these aspects simply couldn't have evolved, and you get books by Chomsky's followers uh, with titles like uh, "Why Darwin Was Wrong," or um, um, uh, "Why Only Us." That's actually a book that Chomsky wrote with a co-author uh, Robert Berwick, in which he argues that we're the only species that ever had language. But if I'm right, that's false. Um, we're not the only species that ever had language, and language did evolve, and it's really, really old. The sources of it probably go back as far as six million years to the common ancestor of chimps and humans, which uh, because we find chimps that are capable of all kinds of things that we didn't realize, and the more we study them, the more we look at chimp cognition, um, the the less easy it becomes to deny that they have some very interesting language-like capabilities. Hmm. So this goes back millions of years. When when you talk about language, what what is what's the kind of separation between communication and language? Where where does that start? Where where is it between just like pointing at something and like a grunt or, or something like that. Where where do you all of a sudden say, okay, that's language? Yeah. So that's that's an extremely good question. And so the evidence suggests that all all 
creatures communicate. Paramecia, ants, bees, they all communicate. So I would define, I define communication as the transfer of information by indexes and icons. Mm-hmm. Um, or just to make it simpler, the transfer of information by signs. Um, but language is the transfer of information by symbols. Um, I see. And so what dis- so so if you look at a bee dance, you know, they they the intensity of their dance indicates the intensity of the honey source and they can indicate the distance and the direction, but those are all indexes and icons that are um uh sort of almost culturally adjusted because we find differences in different bee populations. Mm. Um but but what's clear is that they are indexes and icons. I I actually would not say that it's impossible for another animal to have symbols, in which case if they do, we can't deny that they also have language. And so what would be the difference between an animal language and a human language? Well, we have bigger brains. We're just better at it. It's like uh, comparing my mathematical abilities with Einstein's. I mean, it's not like, you know, I can do math, but I'm not. Einstein right, when it comes right. to math. So, uh, and, and the reason for that is, is easy. You know, he's smarter than I am, at least when it comes to math. Uh, mm-hmm. So he was. Uh, but um, so, so I would say that dogs clearly communicate, you know, and they understand a lot of um, the things that I say to them. Um, I wouldn't say that, there's, that I have any evidence that they're really creating or understanding symbols. Um, but I would say that they, indi- they definitely understand icons my dog looks at tv when there's a dog or a wolf on it and just stares well they've recognized that image which shows that they can recognize an icon Mm -hmm. and when i point they know which what i'm talking about so they recognize indexes yeah there's some some dog that has like a thousand different words memorized or something and you can go to have it fetch a specific toy name and yeah and i think that actually that dog recognizes symbols so really yeah i think that dog uh i mean i would i'm not an expert on canine cognition but it would not surprise me to find out that you could show that that dog like coco the gorilla actually could be taught symbols Hmm. that doesn't mean they create them in the wild dogs don't have names for things in the wild Hmm. but they can learn our names for things they may not be able to reproduce them so the the ability to create symbols to use symbols to reproduce symbols um, and to agree upon the order. The thing about, say, Coco the gorilla, which I think does learn symbols, um, is that um, their grammar is not very complicated, and one could make a case that maybe they don't have any kind of grammar. Um, and that's where Chomsky comes in, because Chomsky said it's not symbols, it's grammar. It's um, but So he would say that if you don't have an elaborate grammar of a certain type, you don't have language, period. Hmm. So if we found a group of Martians exploring the Earth, and they were clearly talking, if they didn't use the principles we use, whatever they're doing, it's not language. Hmm. Uh, A very interesting uh, consequence of of his view. Um, So my view of grammar is that it's sort of simple forms of grammar come along for free once you've you've created symbols, and that they get... The grammar can become more or less, less complex over time, and that's what we see in languages. Some languages are more complex today than they were yesterday or you know, decades ago, centuries ago. In other languages, English is, in some respects, our grammar and word structure is much simpler today than it was a thousand years ago because we used to be German, and we had uh, really interesting grammar and word structure. And today, you know, how, how many forms does a verb have in um, 
In Spanish, well, it's got 30 to 50 forms for a verb. And in Pitaha, um, a verb can have as many as 65,000 possible forms. Hmm. Um, but for English, we have five forms, maximum. Sing, sang, sung, singing, sings. That's it. And so... So, <laughs> so what are 65,000 forms? Yeah. What... I, I don't even I can't wrap my head around that. What, yeah, well, it's, what is the what's the use of that? Well, so I, I only say, know English. So yeah, if I say so I saw I saw wild a wild uh, boar, for example, a peccary. Mm-hmm. Um, well, when I say that in English, we just know whether it's present tense fut- or past tense. English doesn't even have a future tense, so we can't say with a single word future in English. So we have to use a construction. I will I I will see a pig. I see. And that is is just because we lost a future tense and we have to use this extra word will to give us a future meaning. Hmm. But then we have uh present tense I see a pig and past tense I saw a pig. Pinaha uses um they don't even use tenses. So there's no past or present or future, but I have to indicate whether the action I'm reporting on was complete. I have to report on the vertical location of the pig. You know, I saw a pig. Well, just on the verb, it will tell me whether the pig was up above me or below me or uh, parallel with me. Huh. Uh, it will tell me whether the scene is, com- I, I completed the scene, I saw a whole pig, uh, or I just saw, I just glimpsed the pig. Um, and it will uh, tell me whether the uh, uh, scene uh, was out of my control, just something I just happened to see or whether I was really staring at the pig. So all so of these things one, were on the verb. One word, and and you know, like, I accidentally saw a part of a pig below me. Yeah, exactly. Really? Yeah, wow, just one, that just one word. And so huh. why do they have that? Because it's cultural. These are things that are relevant to them to report on. Why don't we have it? Because um, these things are not as important to us culturally, plus we can always throw in more words, you know, because to, to, yeah, you just said with several words what the Pinaha said with one word, although their one word is probably as long as the several words you just said. So it's, you know, it's, languages are always trade-offs. And so when you talk about a language being simpler or more complex, you got to look at the language as a whole. It's difficult, really, to measure that. So their spelling bees are harder. Yeah, basically. yeah. Well, actually, the, their spelling's not, not so hard because they only have three vowels and eight consonants if you're a man and three vowels and seven consonants if you're a woman. What, what is hard for me as a language learner coming in from the outside is to be able to hear the differences between the words. So um, if I say, um, I look for this, I say, if I say, uh, uh, you look for this, a command, but if I say we should all look for this, and, and so you have to get all those vowels in there because each vowel is something else. And, and to remember exactly how many vowels you had to have or you did have or to hear them when you're hearing it for the first time, this is really hard. So when I work with a Pitaha person, I mean, I have them speak it very slowly. And because it's a tone language, the tone language, the tones are important which is something that's often lo- overlooked in language evolution. You say, well, the erectus wasn't capable of making as many sounds as modern humans. They didn't need many sounds. And plus, they could make tones. So if I say in Pitaha, uh, magiai, that is the word for friend. If I say magiai, that's the word for enemy. If I say che, 
that means um, me, myself. If I say che, that means crap, uh, excrement. Hmm. So um, you, if you don't get the tones right, you say very different things. So Homo erectus, just like the Pitaha or the Chinese or the Vietnamese or the Koreans, many languages of Africa are tonal. Um, the, uh, very few of the Americas, but there are tone languages in the Americas as well. It's more comp common in Africa and Asia, but uh, um, erectus could have had tones and intonation. So an intonation, you know, you, um, you indicate every language uses intonation. So for an example in English, he's coming is a statement. He's coming is a, I may not be so happy that he's coming. He's coming? That's a question. So just the, the different uh, pitches that we use in different parts of the sentence indicate all kinds of interesting uh, things that aren't actually present in the words. So what's, and even after all that, our whole sentence with all the stuff we put in it, it still doesn't communicate very well. The, the most astounding thing about language is very poor at communication. I mean, it's better than some things, but most of it has to be interpreted by context. And uh, Oh, I've, <laughs> I've gotten in a lot of trouble over some text messages that were poorly interpreted. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and text leaves out the intonation. It leaves right. out all the other cues. But um, you know, I tell people that uh, one, one of the best pieces of evidence that language isn't as good as it might be for communication is divorces. Right, right. <laughs> you know, just people just don't uh, communicate uh, well, and and even on Facebook and Twitter and different. Uh, but but even in lectures, a student will ask me why I said X, and I'll say, I, "But I didn't say that." Yes, yes, you did. Here's exactly what you said, and I thought, "Yeah, I did say that, but that's not what I meant." <laughs> right. You know, so. Uh, um, and 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 so erectus just needed enough symbols and a culture to be able to interpret the symbols. All languages are underdetermined; they never say uh, everything that they mean. So when a politician says, "I say what I mean," and I mean what I say, they don't understand how language works because nobody does that. It's impossible to say what you mean and mean what you say without uh, a lot of assumed information in the background uh, in the culture. So. Some people think only sapiens had a language. That, that's some people's view. Many people think Many that. Many people think and, that. Yeah, I would say the majority uh, thought that up until just a couple of years ago, and now there's just overwhelming evidence that Neanderthals uh, had language. Well, didn't they have? I mean, didn't they have larger brains? Didn't they have a, a, a significant amount of evidence of, of pretty complicated tools and everything? Right. So. Yes, but but people are really reluctant to say that sapiens is just another species hmm. we're you know we're, we even, are very special though. yeah we're yeah we think of ourselves extremely special everybody thinks of themselves as special white people think of themselves as more special than black people and black people think of them you know everybody favors their group um that's a defect of our species right and and so we favor our species over other species we tend to think even of sapiens. ourselves and just egocentrism yeah. generally exactly yeah. you know i know what i meant so screw everybody else uh, <laughs> it's it's uh it's as someone who fuck. gets on stage <laughs> to, to to tell people how fascinating the things that i have to say are <laughs> yeah. i i know that the, the uh, spotlight effect and egocentrism are real yeah uh, you know and and of course um you know, as I was uh, watching you do comedy the other night, one of the most challenging things for me as an outsider in seeing comedy is that um, 
it either worked or it didn't, and you know immediately if it didn't work oh, yeah. uh, or it did work. And and for lectures, you can always say if somebody didn't understand, ah, they're stupid. But you can't say that if you tell a joke and nobody laughs. That's uh, you can't just say they're stupid because your your job is to. And, but it's the same thing for scientists. If we say something and somebody doesn't understand it, that's our fault. Right. Um, if they're actually trying to understand it, if they're not trying to understand it, you know, I mean, there's a whole group of scientists that study climate change who. I think are deliberately misunderstood by people who don't want to believe in climate change, right. but uh, but uh, but they're communicating clearly enough. Mm. Uh, their language is they're not being misunderstood because of unclear language, yeah. uh, which just shows that culture can override however clear the language is. Culture can override it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I'm I'm not opposed to blaming the audience, by the way, when, <laughs> when they don't laugh. I'm like, hey, the, the last five audiences that I performed enjoyed that that's joke, great. so there's something wrong with you guys. Um, so how, how significant do you think that uh, even just – the size of the brain because that's that's something that we have a, yeah. a pretty clear record of yes the, the evolution of the size of the brain it, it, what what kind of a factor did that play well uh size um certainly isn't everything because the sperm oil has the largest brain in the animal kingdom and humans have never had a brain i think that's nine thousand cc's whereas an average large-brained male individual has a uh, about a 1,250 cc brain to a 1,300 cc brain. Um, chimpanzees have brains of about uh, 350 to 450 cc's, and and Australopithecines, our direct ancestors of humans, had brains about the same size as chimps, but seem to have been a lot smarter. So brain size alone, it's also brain organization, and there's a wonderful a line of research being done by a neuroscientist who's Brazilian, uh, Susana Ercolano Ozel. Uh, she's now at Vanderbilt University because her research is so um, earth-shattering, I mean, in terms of our perceptions, because she's shown that what really matters in terms of intelligence is how densely the neurons are packed in. Mm. And you can't tell that when you go back a million Just years. by skull size alone. So, right. so we know that erectus had um, an average brain size of around 950 cc's. Hmm. So there are some European females that, today that have brain sizes in that range. So if you take a woman with a brain size of 950 cc's and compare her to a man with a brain size of 1,350 cc's, um, it's easy to show in many cases that she's smarter than the man. Mm -hmm. So size doesn't is not related one-to-one. -one. I mean, it's important. Um, I mean, well, there's a lot of when you mention the sperm whale, isn't a lot of the brain mass just kind of um, uh, being being used for just controlling uh, all of the sensory organs and everything else on that, just controlling the massive body more than putting together any kind of complex thought or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Well, what is important to them, and uh, what is the brain being used for? So when we, uh, you know, we we started. Uh, reorganizing parts of our brain. The greatest thing about the human brain, one of the most amazing things, is how plastic it is. So there's a whole large section of, of our brains dedicated to vision. But if somebody's born blind, um, research by people at MIT has shown that, um, and other places, that it does, it's not like that area just sends empty. 
You know, we fill it up with other things. Um, if, if you take a, if you take a little kid and damage their brain when they're little, chances are they're going to overcome a lot of that, if not all of it, even though parts of their brain have been damaged because our brains are so plastic and so flexible. Once we get older, uh, the brain is pretty much set in its ways. So then if you damage it, it's harder to recover from that. Do you know any, like, anything about what different kind of brain damage, brain injuries has been able to teach us about language? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of really interesting uh, stuff about this. And some of the most cutting-edge research I know of today is being done by Evelina Fedorenko, who's uh, um, uh, – she looks like a teenager, but she's this really brilliant neuroscientist at MIT who um, who has shown where more accurately than perhaps anyone else how language is distributed in the brain and how um, if you damage one very specific part of the brain, you get a specific kind of language impairment that you wouldn't get if you damage another part of the brain. This applies to adults uh, who've already got these regions formed, not so much to children who are still forming them. Because if you damage the same region in a child's brain, they won't have the same long-lasting results usually as when you damage an adult. So there's a lot of work showing down to single neurons that are dedicated to specific tasks. So our brains start off very plastic. We start off with all kinds of connections between neurons we don't need, so we start pruning them. And then when by the time we get old, we get the expression, you can't te teach an old dog new tricks. And to some degree, that's largely correct because our brains are, are fixed in ways that take away some of our cognitive flexibility. But the greatest thing about humans in my my view in terms of human evolution is is how we've evolved towards cognitive plasticity, towards uh, uh, being able to think flexibly in cultures. We create new cultures that create new ways of thinking. Um, so uh, if you're raised in a particular environment, your brain will be formed in a particular way and your language and the way you think and the way you try to solve problems. And if you spend your whole life in that environment, um, it's not a question of intelligence. It simply becomes more difficult to change. I mean, I go to the Peter Hahn, they think I'm an idiot, which, you know, could be true. But uh, <laughs> but I can't do anything that they consider necessary for survival. I can't track animals well. And it's not just that I haven't ever done it before. I'm no good at it. I don't right. have the aptitude for it. And I know that if I had been born and raised among the Peter Hahn with the same exact brain that I have today, I would be great at it. Yeah. Because they are. So... Uh, well, it's, a, it's it's this is kind of about efficiency, right? right. You, you, the the brain learns what it needs to in a certain environment, and then what what use is there for a bunch of knowledge that you're never going to use or have any use for? That's that's a whole lot of wasted energy. Exactly. Well, the Pina Hot. So so we have computers and iPhones and all sorts of things to offload excess information to. So we don't have to remember as many things because it's just some of the things we used to have to remember, now we can put on our iPhone, like everybody's address and middle name and these sorts of things. The Pitaha, every Pitaha that I've ever talked to and gone into the jungle with has a mental map of the entire jungle area. They know every square kilometer, and it's all in their brains as a map. And the iPhone they doesn't... No smartphone. <laughs> yeah, they don't know smartphone. I have... Like, I took a Pinaha to uh, to the city, uh, a big city. He had never been out of the jungle before in his life. We went to this large city in Brazil called Porto Velho, and he needed, uh, he needed medical attention. 
So I took him to my house first. I had a house in Porto Velho. And then I explained what was going to happen in his language. And I took him to the hospital. And as I was leaving the hospital, he said, yeah, I don't want to stay here. And I said, but you have to stay here because the doctor has to see you. And uh, if the doctor doesn't see you, you could die. He says, I'd rather die. I don't want to stay here. And um, so I said, well, you stay here tonight and I'll come back tomorrow. And uh, I woke up in the morning and he's standing in my living room because we didn't lock the doors, you know. And uh, he's got his hospital gown on, you know, with his butt showing. And it's uh, about 20 miles away. And I said, how did you get here? I walked. So he had only been there once in his entire life. And he was in a hospital in another part of town, and he knew exactly where to go. Wow. Huh. And that's because of the way they've trained their mind to pay attention to the geography of an area, where the river is, all sorts of things that we don't pay attention to. So when you talk about having specific neurons for different aspects of language, and then there's such a variety of language, such different cultures. So if you, eventually, if, if we're... Uh, doing enough brain mapping would you be able to put someone in an mri and know what language they speak that's a very interesting question i i'm not sure that we're there but uh i bet i mean you th- eventually this is something you could maybe do i'm not a neuroscientist but i have seen things that i thought were impossible being done hmm. so i wouldn't be surprised if in the future we can tell that different languages are distributed across the brain in different ways. Hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, we already can do mental maps of the meanings that we store in the brains. And so, you know, Peter Ha only has about 90 verbs. Um, And and the reason for that is because they can add all these other things to it that I was talking about that removes the need. Verbs are like letters of the alphabet to them. They can put them in any sort of – they can add so much to them that they don't need that many, whereas they have lots of nouns, many more nouns than I probably know because – they know the name of every species of flora and fauna in the jungle. There's nothing you can see that you can ask them. They'll tell you the name immediately. They'll tell you what it eats, where it lives, what how it behaves. They know everything about their environment. And if you took me out here, I couldn't name a single tree around the campus right now. And I literally, I probably couldn't name one. My wife could name almost all of them. I keep calling her my Peter Ha wife because she's was an agricultural economist, was her undergraduate major. Uh, and uh, so she... She learned the names of things. She's just interested in those things, and she knows so many names of creatures that I don't know the name of because I really I grew up in a desert in Southern California. We didn't have many trees, and we didn't have uh, many creatures. And so um, I know the names of lots of species of cows because we raise cattle. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it re- our, what we know reflects our experience, not surprisingly. Mm-hmm. What about um, what about body language and how how it. Uh uh, how it mixes with our language. What what are the connections there? Is it is it universal in every culture that we? I'm sitting here as I as I'm talking right now. I'm I'm moving my hand and I don't even know what I'm doing with my hand right now. But I'm talking and I'm somehow but, expressing myself with my hand at the same. time. But you're time. being very systematic, and linguists who specialize in gesture could tell you exactly what you're doing with your hand because it's not random. Um, if you think of language as I do, as communication by signs and symbols. Um, then we do we can do symbols and signs with our hands just as well as we can with our mouth. And language is holistic. It's not just words in a specific arrangement. It right, is far more tone. than that. Yeah, it's tone, it's intonation, it's hand gestures. I mean, you watch yourself on the phone when nobody's around. Blind people gesture. It's mm-hmm. just something that 
that is, we communicate with our whole bodies and we use all the symbols and all the indexes and all the icons we can come up with when we're doing, because language, as we said, doesn't really work that well. So we need all the help we can get. And that's what the body does. We communicate with our whole body, not just with our mouths. I'm I'm glad that we don't have a lot of uh, of smells in our language. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you mentioned, ants being able to communicate, or like yeah. other things have hormones. I'm happy that that doesn't come along um, with <laughs> with our language. I was looking through your books. Uh, this one uh, seemed intriguing. I wanted to ask you, what is dark matter of the mind, the culturally articulated unconscious? Can you uh, give me a little summary of what that's about? It is how we learn things we didn't know we learned and how those things that we don't know that we know affect us. Mm. So there was an article today being discussed on Facebook about why Americans smile more than the British. Uh, I mean, you could say that Americans have more to be happy about, uh, but uh, that's probably not the explanation. We learn to smile a lot more because in our culture, certain behaviors are more valued. So we we learn how to rank things. We, we, we all have values and knowledge structures and social roles and how we interleave those. So if you, let's say you take the people of um, Paris and, and the people of Houston. Uh, there's no doubt, and this has been studied many times, that overall the average Houstonian is more overweight than the average Parisian. Mm-hmm. So you could say there are two values, good food, physical fitness. Um, now, I, I would imagine that both Houstonians and Parisians like good food, and they like to be in shape. They would like to be in shape. But how high are those values ranked? Um, so if good food is the highest value and being physically fit is far lower, um, you're going to be overweight. And if being physically fit is higher than good food, you're going to enjoy good food, just less of it. Um, those are just, that's just a simple example of how these things, nobody, you have, you don't have to be taught these things. You see it all around you. Uh, William James called the kind, and so did uh, other philosophers, the kind of learning, uh, that we do that's sort of stored in our unconscious apperceptional learning. Mm-hmm. We have these apperceptions. I found out there's a rock group called apperceptions, which I was very happy to find out about <laughs> when I was looking on it. But, um, you know, so we have these experiences as children. And they teach us things. A pita ha stands differently than an American stands. And and when a, when two pita ha are walking uh, through the jungle or anywhere, they're a single file. I've taken pita ha out to the city, and I can't get them to walk abreast with me. They're walking behind me, and it makes conversation hard. But you learn in the jungle without anybody teaching you to take as little space as possible to avoid the vines. And like when I walk in the jungle, I get knocked over, and I'm falling all the time, and they're not. They learn how to use their space much more effectively, whereas Americans, they walk, they take up the whole sidewalk. You've got three buddies of a certain size walking in. Everybody has to step off the sidewalk because it doesn't even occur to us. Well, the, this is dark matter of our minds. This is how we, the things that we do that are governed by things we've learned that nobody taught us that we don't even know we know. A bicycle, bicycle mm-hmm. riding is kind of like that. It's interesting that you bring up smiling because smiling is so much associated with being happy in our minds. But but because one one group of people smiles more, it doesn't necessarily mean they're happier. I'm I'm from a small town in in Wisconsin, and it was just kind of this very culturally imposed norm that you had to be kind of like walking around with a big smile on your face yeah. all of the time and 
definitely it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone was happy all of the time but that was just uh it was just almost this cultural kind of requirement that yeah, people will comment do. to you why are you why do you look so glum today i don't know it's none of your effing business leave me alone yeah <laughs> i had a i had a good friend who taught at ucla for almost 50 years before he died british and i said uh, you know why haven't you ever naturalized to become an american since you've lived here for about 50 years he said i will never join a country that lists in one of its founding documents that the pursuit of happiness is a goal he said life is so much more than happiness right <laughs> so he although he ironically did uh, naturalize about a year before he died but uh, i think that was to collect his social security <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, uh he um it, it is it's just a very very different value i mean so for some people happiness is like the ultimate value it was certainly there when uh, when the founding fathers were were talking about what was important and for other people it's um maybe intellectual freedom and in the you know like like i get really tense and anxious as most scientists do when i'm trying to figure something out I mean, that's what science is all about, is having something you can't figure out and trying to figure it out. And that makes you tense sometimes, and it doesn't always make you the best company, and you're frowning more than you're smiling. You might smile when you've come up with a solution, but then you're on to the next problem and you're frowning again. But I wouldn't live my life any other way. If somebody gave me $100 million today, I would still want to do exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, well, it's like, it's like when you're looking at a complex math problem or something, you have you, or like the Thinking Man statue looks very grumpy, you, right? Yeah, exactly. You know? uh, but uh, uh, whereas uh, smiling tends to go along with kind of cognitive ease, but then you're not challenging yourself, and uh, yeah, I, I, that's interesting. I think about that quite a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like breathing easy. I mean. If you're relaxed, you're breathing easy. But if you're working out, you're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's I, I used to tell students uh, I still do once in a while, but nobody ever believes me that the library is the gymnasium of the mind, and that uh, you ought to put at least as much effort into keeping your mind in shape as you do keeping your butt in shape. Um, and uh, and so when you're working out, whether it's mental or physical exertion. Um, you you might be enjoying it and you wouldn't give it up for anything but it's not sure it's not clear you're happy mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're doing it so you have about 15 books you said some of them are a little more toward the academic side some of them are a little more um kind of uh, uh, popular uh, uh, for uh for the general public yeah and uh well i want uh, i want my listeners to check out some of your books some of my listeners are i got a lot of like truck drivers yeah, that yeah. are naturally inquisitive uh people yeah. and and uh are behind the wheel right now uh, killing some time and and want some stimulating conversation and and would be interested in your so what's what's the uh, where's a good place to start like a few of your books that you'd uh, like so so the three books that I would recommend most strongly to to just the uh, non-specialist who's curious are my first book, uh, Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, Life and Language in the Amazonian Jungle. Um, it's in many languages worldwide and has uh, been a bestseller. Um, uh, language, the Cultural Tool. Um which is, in a sense, the answer to Steve Pinker's language, the language instinct, um, um, and um, how language began. Those are the three that I would most strongly uh, recommend um, uh, of of all those books that I've written that are not written for specialists. Um, but "Don't Sleep There Are Snakes" is probably the first one I would start with. What's that about? Uh, "Don't Sleep There Are Snakes" is about. Uh, uh, 
it's partly autobiographical, but it's mainly about the Pinaha people and how different their language is from ours and what this has to tell us about the nature of human language in general and, uh, and how I went from Christian to atheist um, and, uh, and why my uh, former wife still lives alone in the middle of the Amazon. So there is a combination of personal and scientific, but it is um, – and it has been used in many, in several colleges. It's been used as required reading for all incoming freshmen, and it's been it's used regularly in in classes uh, around the world. So it's uh, it's touched a lot of people because of its focus on living among the Pinaha in the Amazon. Fantastic. Well, I have my guests each week plug a nonprofit of their choice. Do you have one in mind? Yes, the nonprofit that. Uh, is doing the kind of work that I wished I had more time to help with is Survival International based in London. And they defend the uh, rights of indigenous peoples and minority peoples around the world. Hmm. That's fantastic. Even yeah. though Londoners don't smile as much. That's they're, right. They're still they're too busy working. <laughs> they're too busy working. <laughs> well, terrific. Well, thank you, Dan Everett, for being such a wonderful guest. Thanks for participating in Stand Up Science. That was such a fun night the other night. You and Steven Pinker on the same show. What a terrific treat. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, having a return guest. She's actually on a live, the third live Here We Are podcast ever. It was episode 111. She was on with Colin D. Young, and we talked about New Year's resolutions and self-control, if that's ringing any bells for anybody. So we did a one-on-one, and it's coming out next week. She is a fantastic guest. Really, really terrific episode. You guys are going to dig it. Speaking of digging things, please check out Rent by Dig Review Psychonautics, a comics exploration of psychedelics. Those reviews, all those purchases, rentals, those help me out tremendously, and they help you out because you're going to see an entertaining film. And Don't forget, still got a stand-up science tour that is going real strong. We're adding more dates all the time, so make sure and check that out. Got all sorts of cities still coming up, like, uh, I don't know, by the time you're hearing this, maybe still Asheville, North Carolina, Charleston, Savannah, Georgia, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, St. Louis, and jumping over to Colorado for Boulder, in Denver, Colorado, uh, doing Los Angeles, San Diego, Seattle, Portland, adding more stuff in California too, it looks like. More dates coming soon, working on some stuff for July, uh, probably in the middle of the country as well, so keep an eye on that. Check out shanemoss.com slash standupscience. And please, please, please check out Psychonautics, the comics exploration of psychedelics. It's the release this week. Bump it up there so it gets uh, it gets more reviews and it gets more recommended to more people. This is a, an especially crucial time for that. And so I, uh, I hope you enjoyed doing a second episode this week. And I hope you enjoy the documentary. I'll talk with you next week. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Mm-hmm.